the grand vision for Tensor, the one-liner, is we want to become the financial stack for NFTs on Solana. Going into 2024, we have some big plans to essentially open up the protocol and invite every single developer out there who's really interested in Solana right now, who's perhaps even already building on Solana, to build on top of our protocols. We want to be the fundamental liquidity layer for NFTs. All right, everyone. So on Empire, you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto. And that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the Digital Asset Summit. We've hosted this since 2019. It's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code EMPIRE20. We'll see you in London. Welcome, everyone. Uh, We have a very special episode one that I've been wanting to do for a while because, um, you know, I always like to bring on founders that I use it, um, their products on the daily. And, you know, you've heard us talk about Tensor. Uh, it is an amazing product. I use it. I love it. This is not an endorsement or anything, but I just, uh, you know, they've built a beautiful product where you can go and collect uh, JPEGs. And so really excited to have both Ilya and Richard, the co-founders of Tensor. Um, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Great. So why don't we get started with intros and then the origin story of what uh, led you both to decide to start an NFT marketplace um, in Solana? Yeah. So I guess uh, we had a, I don't even know if it's weird anymore, but we basically met online um, during the COVID crisis. Uh, I guess everything was happening online and we kind of had similar interests, met on the YC forum, talked about crypto, decided that we wanted to build something together. Uh, ended up building like an Oracle product for one of the Solana hackathons, decided that we were a great team and that we should quit our jobs and work on this full time. And yeah, I guess two years later, here we are building Tensor. Yeah, uh, to add on to that, I was basically working a TradFi job. Uh, I was doing like quant research, a bit of software engineering at a quantitative training firm. Kind of got bored during COVID because I was working from home. Didn't have too much like social interactions. I was just like, okay, why not? Why not go on a, a Tinder for co-founders? Just like try to find a co-founder to work on a startup together. Um, so. And so you you mentioned Y Combinator. So in the forums, you basically both of you independently had this idea that about NFTs and wanted to do something in this space. Or how did you kind of go through quote unquote this idea maze and and fa- finding each other down this path? I think it just, it started with Richard just dropping me a DM saying, hey, like your GitHub looks interesting. Sounds like you're interested in crypto. I'm interested in crypto. Do you want to chat? And then we did like a pretty long call, maybe about two hours and just kind of shuffled ideas back and forth. Um, It was pretty broad at that point, like NFTs, DeFi, lots of stuff. But we did sort of have one idea that stood out to us. And that was the NFT pricing oracle. And the reason it stood out to us was because we basically had, or like, I guess I knew a couple of guys that were saying they would pay for that. And we thought, okay, well, that's a great signal. You know, if somebody wants to pay for a product, then maybe we should build it. And also seemed like a pretty low lift idea to build. Um, like we knew we would basically get it done in a, in a month or two. And that's exactly what happened. We built it in a month or two. The only difference is that when we actually did build it, nobody wanted to pay for it. <laughs> so that was when we figured out that we were a good team, but the idea had to change. And at this point, was it clear and obvious to you that you wanted to do it and build this product in Solana? Um, you know, this is, you mentioned COVID. Uh, Solana activity at the time was fairly limited. It is certainly not what it is today. I'm curious, what, you know, 
have you decided to build on Solana? If so, why and or how was that process? So from my perspective, when I was doing uh, you know my full-time job at the trading firm, I had a lot of like friends who were like really big into crypto. And they obviously talked to all their other trader friends at like, you know, Jump, at Jane Street, um, at the time, like Alameda. And they basically all said, hey, look, there's this new blockchain that is much faster and is very different from Ethereum. And the, the vision of Solana was becoming the NASDAQ, right, of the world, where it was permissionless, it was global, everyone had the same latency to all the different validators. And so no one had like, um, it wasn't like TradFi where HFT firms who had the best tech, had the best talent, got like priority access to the markets. I thought that was like super appealing. Um, so at the time I had interest in Solana and building on Solana, but I wasn't fully deep into Solana yet. That's sort of when, you know, I, I hit up Ilya on, on Y Combinator and funny enough, he had been building on Solana for like a year. And so we just started chatting about like crypto, started chatting about like Solana, NFTs, DeFi. Uh, long story short, he, he red pilled me into like taking the, making the jump and actually building on Solana. Got it. And uh, maybe if you can comment on just the process of building on Solana, you mentioned that you built the, the pricing Oracle. I was looking at the time also at doing this, obviously being so critical for like NFT lending markets, but you mentioned that you built that fairly quickly. Talk to us then about the evolution of then pivoting and transitioning into building what Tensor is today. And also if you could comment on the experience of building on Solana at a perhaps an earlier time where repos and the tools were not as perhaps as, as accessible as they are today. Yeah. So Solana being younger than Ethereum obviously was, and probably still is more raw. So you kind of need to deal with like lower level stuff when you're building on it versus uh, Ethereum. But as our friend Armani likes to say, if you show up and there's already docs, you're too late. And I, I kind of think that's true. I think like as a developer, you basically want to show up to a place where there's like nothing but like the core infrastructure that has been built. Because that's how you know you're early. That doesn't mean you're right, but it doesn't mean you're early. And so for us, when we started building on Solana, it was exactly like that. Like nothing worked. If you wanted to figure out how something works, uh, you just go uh, source dive. There's no docs. Probably still is no docs, to be honest, for many things. So I think that was that. The other thing where Solana is very different to Ethereum is the amount of data it produces. Solana, because it's so fast and monolithic, is very data hungry. And what that meant for our Oracle product was that we basically had to think pretty carefully about data storage and caching and moving data around and making it available really fast. And that problem was a lot more acute on Solana versus Ethereum. Um, so yeah, that's probably how it was different. And maybe Richard, you can jump in and tell us the the actual story of building Tensor itself, what it is today. I mean, as far as I can remember, you guys were a very lean team. Maybe it was just you two. I, I think you're not a large team today, but you are, for all intents and purposes, the leading uh, NFT marketplace in, in Solana. That was not the case. I think when you started building, there were others. There's always competition, but you guys have you know, we see this story time and time again of very lean teams in crypto that are are able to iterate quickly and win market share in a very dramatic and fast manner. So we'd love to just get the the inside scoop into that and how that process, what was going in your head of, hey, there's, because oftentimes when founders come to me, they say they get really worried 
when they drop like, you know, a, a news article drop and says new funding, new project in founders, some founders really take it and get paranoid about it. Um, but others just are like, it's fine. You know, it's a big market. It just sort of validates it. Uh, you guys were building at a time where there's already competition. Um, but I'm, I'm just really curious what was going on into your head and, and how a kind of a very lean team as yourself was able to really pull off what you, what you did and what you have done. Yep. For context, uh, basically it was me and Ilya hacking away in a co-working private office for about eight months until we raised our seed round and then started hiring people. Now we're about, I want to say 10 full-time, maybe 11. I miss, I lost crack. I lost count because we started like signing a bunch of people like in the last two weeks. So a lot of growth happening, but we're up to like 10, 11 people. I would say, um, you know, to be, to be completely honest, right off the bat, like we were basically just cowboys and like just like developers and like hackers who had zero data infrastructure, like zero professional data infrastructure experience. And we basically chose one of the harder products to build in the NFT space, a marketplace that required a shit ton of, sorry, excuse my language, a lot of, a lot of like data pipelines, getting, getting data to the front end in real time and working on Solana, which like Ilya mentioned, there's a lot of data coming in. This is like web two scale data pipelines that we had to build and we had zero experience. I think what separated us from maybe other builders at the time was that we were scrappy. We focused on what really mattered, which was building a differentiated product that we had pretty good conviction in, um, that had some experience that was 10x better in one dimension. And for us, that was building a product that was 10x better for the pro trader. And at the time, it was like very non-consensus, or very like, you know, counter consensus, where a lot of people thought like NFTs are collectibles, they should be traded on an eBay-like interface. And, you know, trying to add trading view charts, trying to add an order book view to NFTs is completely missing the point. But we felt different. Like we had a pretty like, we had a strong trader background and we felt that this is exactly what most people in this market are doing right now. They're trading NFTs and maybe flipping it for a profit in and out like a hundred times a day. And, you know, existing players were not seeing that. And we felt that that was our opportunity, basically our beachhead to building a differentiated NFT marketplace. And then sort of like getting more and more market share as we introduce like more innovative products like our AMM, and then eventually on our AMM plus like NFT listing side by side. And of course we have like a lot of other features now. Yeah, definitely. And, and so you, you start building it. Um, how, at what point did you understand that there was validation there in the, in Solana? You know, I think obviously, you know, I was an investor in Blur and Pac-Man described it very succinctly, like OpenSea is not going to do this, at least in the Ethereum camp. He said, there needs to be a, 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 a NFT marketplace for traders, which it sounds like you guys have done that that playbook. But how, you know, when you start building that, I'm curious, like, what were some of the metrics uh, that you started to understand? Okay, there's definitely something here. And, and was there anything in the process that made you question, like, the viability of the product? Were there kind of roadmaps, like uh, hiccups along the road that, you know, made you kind of second guess this thesis? Oh boy. <laughs> it's easier to say what, uh, what, what, what didn't make us second guess the thesis. Cause I guess ever since we started building, uh, it was kind of down only like FTX happened. A lot of people gave up on Solana. Uh, NFT market as a whole was kind of looking worse and worse. And it was all layering together. It's like, okay, you're building on a chain. Most people are telling you it's going to die. 
you're building a product most people think don't make sense. Um, it, it, it wasn't pretty for a long time. I think the only thing that kept us going were actually our customers. Uh, so early on, we got like 50, 100 guys excited. And then they told, you know, a couple of their friends. And then we had 200 guys. And then maybe like 300 guys. And it kind of stayed at that level for a long time, for like months and months and months. It didn't grow to like thousands for a while. But those 300 guys, they would like be in our DMs every day and they'd be like, man, like, how did I live without this? And it's just like, what are you going to do? You're not going to stop shipping. You're like, okay, well, I don't know, 300 people like it. Maybe there's like more. Um, so mm-hmm. honestly, for the longest time, it was just kind of like raw conviction. It was just like, okay, these guys, they're the market, they're validation, just going to keep building and shipping. And I think the turning point for us was just about this time last year when we started seeing real traction. Um, I think that was probably like the culmination of enough features being built, but also the word spreading that there's this new marketplace that is more optimized for trading. Um, And people liked it, you know, people just showed up and they liked it and it worked and it was fast. And at the time, like others weren't. So I think it was just a combination of those things that led us to keep building. Did you have any point... I mean, you're right. I mean, you you went through, uh, you had an incredible vantage point into what was the near death or apparent near death of Solana and then the resurgence over the last year. Um, did you at any point consider transitioning, moving to another chain? Um, and also more generally, um, you know, would love to just take this opportunity to, to talk about um what was what did it feel like and what was this kind of transition over the last year of the kind of the the, the rise of Solana from your standpoint? A hundred percent. I think we we considered moving chains many, many times. In fact, we even considered pivoting outside of NFTs entirely, just because we felt that yes, we've built this amazing aggregator at the time and then it turned into a marketplace for you know the couple hundred guys, maybe a thousand people, a thousand daily actors, active users at the time. But we felt like it was a pretty tough battle, especially after FTX, when we felt that people from the outside basically saw Solana as a dead chain, right? And that perception that people like lock into their mind is very difficult to change once they latch onto it. So the biggest worry after FTX was not that Solana, the tech, was bad or that in fact, even like users leaving Solana itself when they're already in it, the biggest threat to us was people not coming into Solana ever again. Creators, projects, even people who are looking to collect NFTs, we were afraid that they would never touch Solana again because of what happened. And of course, like from the inside, we still saw a thriving organic community of NFT traders on our platform trading NFTs back and forth every single day. In fact, I think the, the wallet count and the volume was at like all-time highs during that dip, you know, denominated in soul. Mm. But that was like, that was basically a, a little like evidence for us that we should maybe keep going and see it through, you know, a couple more months. Um, hopefully the market recovers. Hopefully Solana, you know, gets rid of that, this sort of unfair negative narrative around it. And maybe there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel that we can work towards. And I think like in hindsight, it obviously worked out. At the time, of course, our conviction was wavering, especially when 99 out of 10 VCs were telling us to switch chains. And that's hard, right? When you're raising around, no one wants to give you money. The only money that we got into Tensor during the seed round initially 
was from those, you know, couple hundred users, you know, 50 of them decided to put in a small check into us to keep the, the lights running and keep our AWS servers running. And that was enough mm-hmm. to, uh, for, for us to basically bridge that, you know, bridge that uh, tough time. Yeah. Um, at any point, do you see Tensor expanding into other ecosystems? Um, or would you, or are you just really solely focused on Solana? I think at this point, we're solely focused on Solana. We sort of believe in the verticalized approach rather than the horizontal approach. So the horizontal approach is you go and try to build the same product on every chain. The verticalized approach is you try and build multiple <laughs> products that are hopefully synergistic on the same chain. I think maybe I even heard this on Empire, but I think at some point you guys said like, hey, blockchains are like countries. And I actually think that's a very apt analogy because there's there's this sort of like patriotism around blockchains. And like, if you were starting a fintech company today, let's say you're building a bank, would you go and start your bank in five countries and try to build a shallow product in each one? Or would you try to build the best product in the one country that you live in? And then maybe at some point you have a branch somewhere else. I think that's probably how we're thinking about the world, where at this point, Tensor has one mission and one mission only, and that is to build the best trading experience for NFTs on Solana. We want to become the fundamental liquidity layer for NFTs that every single dApp builds on top of. Um, Mm. And I think until that vision is completely realized, which probably is years away, I don't think we're going to be shopping chains. It just doesn't make sense. Focus is everything for a small startup. And I think that's that's our focus. I see you nodding, Richard, as well. I want to I wanna, uh, double-click on that grand vision. You could look at the product today and say, well, what else is there to build? And I teased at you guys yesterday on Twitter around, you know, collecting is a very social experience. Certainly trading is as well. What else can you build? You have a ton of attention. I think, I don't know if you've made this assessment, but from all the protocols that exist in Solana, I would probably guess that Jupiter um, and you guys are probably the most like active in terms of attention, in terms of like activity. I may be wrong, but I am curious, like, what is that grand vision? Like, what what else can you build? What else can you capitalize on? Um, the grand vision for Tensor, the one-liner, is we want to become the financial stack for NFTs on Solana. I think there is, so maybe to provide you some context, we initially chose NFTs as sort of the vertical we would build in. Not because, you know, we were degenerate JPEG flippers and like, you know, we liked like JPEGs a lot. It was because we felt that there was this massive opportunity to build interesting financial primitives in the space that no one has really done well. I think that's what got us excited. You know, we're, we're more from the, the TradFi background. And so we felt that, you know, no one, I mean, basically the only financialization of NFTs was like trading and maybe a bit of borrowing and lending. And we felt that there was such a massive amount of green space that we could build a really big platform, company, protocol, whatever you call it, just on the idea that a lot of things in the future will be tokenized as NFTs. And as with many things in crypto, they'll be financialized. And we want to become 
maybe some people don't like this term, but the super protocol for all the financialization you might do with NFTs and Solana. I think what's interesting is going into 2024, we have some big plans to essentially open up the protocol and invite every single developer out there who's really interested in Solana right now, who's perhaps even already building on Solana, to build on top of our protocols. We want to be the fundamental liquidity layer for NFTs and introduce other financial primitives beyond just like spot trading in the case of a marketplace. So you can imagine that there might be, you know, some form of insurance for NFTs. We'll build a protocol for that. And you as the DAP developer could build an interesting insurance product on top of the, the Tensor protocol that maybe like talks to that marketplace and all that liquidity shared between both protocols so that you don't, you don't have capital inefficient traders, right? All the liquidity is within one protocol. That's basically our plan for 2024 is to get as many developers to build on top of our protocols. Yeah. Yeah. I've always felt that people sometimes miss the mark around, certainly right now the activity is around art, but it is super interesting because if you solve art, which is probably the most like um, heterogeneous kind of type of NFT, like in terms of traits and like 10,000 collections and there's hundreds of traits, like whereas if you solve really difficult problems and build primitives around liquidity for these type of very diverse and unique assets, non-fungible assets, then you can probably extend that to other easier type of NFTs, right? And even develop very like new primitives for DeFi as we think about it, right? Like think about parcels of land within a certain zip code. It's, it's far easier to kind of do that, right? You kind of understand that, but nothing really stopping you from extending the same kind of logic into other NFTs, real world assets. Now, I want to get your take on that. Like, do, do you, right now, we see all the activity on these collections. Um, at, what is kind of your thinking around other type of non-art NFTs? Is that something that you're interested in? Is that something that you see growing in the near future? Um, or is that something that you're probably going to leave for another developer like parcels of the world to kind of figure out and then maybe integrate with Tensor? I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. So I don't think we will try to go after every use case. There's probably some use cases that we will want to build ourselves, but there's also many use cases that we have no expertise in. For example, we're working with a company called Baxis uh, and they do alcohol in the blockchain. Like we don't know anything about that world, but they do really, really well. And where we come in as their partner is we provide the trading infrastructure for all of their NFTs to trade. And I think what you said is actually 100% correct, which is you build this infrastructure and you battle test it with almost like toy use cases, like collectibles, art, you know, the silly stuff. Because the silly stuff, like if something goes wrong, I mean, yes, it's unpleasant, but at the end of the day, you didn't lose someone's, you know, like bond or 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 house state on the blockchain. And then once it's battle tested and it's been there for years and that Lindy effect has kicked in, then that's when you're gonna bring on a lot of the more serious assets on chain. I think the other thing to to be mindful of is these more serious assets come with a lot more compliance requirements. And that world is coming, like that world is it's just the real world, right? Like you can't assume that, you know, blockchain is going to be compliance free for the, for the rest of your life. So I think having infrastructure in place already that's working and functional 
when you have to layer those additional things on top is way easier than trying to build the infrastructure, battle test it all the way from ground zero and having to deal with all the compliance stuff at the same time. So I, I just think it's an evolution, just like the internet evolved from silly pictures and videos to you know everything it does today. I think crypto and blockchains will basically do the same. The way I see it is that Tensor isn't a bet on what kind of interesting applications that people will come up with and how we predict that interesting application. I think it's nice. It helps our helps guide our intuition and helps guide maybe some of the products that we build. But I think what Tensor is betting on is NFT as a form factor will be a popular form factor in crypto. And a lot of things will move from the real world into crypto. And we essentially get exposed to all of that upside. So you can imagine that if the world hypothetically, uh, instead of running 99% on TradFi rails, it becomes you know 50% on crypto rails. You can imagine that there's so many things in the world that you might want to move into crypto and they're just inherently non-fungible. Like a car, right? A, every car has a VIN number, has a model, you, know, you name it. Can't be a fungible token. It has to be an NFT. Houses, obviously, the most obvious example. Literally anything that you can think of in real world will probably be a non-fungible token when it becomes tokenized in crypto. And like there, there needs to be infrastructure for that, especially financial infrastructure, because that's what crypto unlocks. Is this permissionless financial system that anyone beca- can become a lender, anyone can become an LP, and it basically unlocks liquidity globally and permissionlessly. So I think that's like super exciting. And I mean, I'd be lying to you if I told you I I knew what the next thing coming is for NFTs. But as long as there is, I I like, so so I don't know if you know Chow from uh, Alliance. He made this like apt analogy a while ago. Like DGENs are the early adopters of crypto. And they're the Mm -hmm. ones who will bootstrap all the, you know, capital that needs to come in to build the infrastructure. And I think right now we're just catering to the DGENs, making sure they're happy, making sure that Tensor stays Mm -hmm. relevant making sure that we can fund development of all of this infrastructure that we're building. Yeah. Yeah, certainly like, a, you know, here Blockworks of the world really get excited about tokenization. The real challenge is going back to your earlier days of, of building oracles for NFTs. I think at some point when you start bringing on and trying to stitch together, you know, atoms and bits, you know, the physical world in a digital tokenized context there certainly needs to be some arbitration, some layer that touches real world, right? When you start tokenizing not only treasuries, but cars and, and, and parcels of land and whatnot, like that, that becomes just more challenging um, to, to do, but certainly not impossible. I, I think all you can do now is probably just build the infrastructure for, for pure, only digital stuff. Um, um, I'm curious in, in, in this journey, just talking a little bit about, to give people an idea of how people use Tensor today. So there's a multiple collections. We can talk about which ones you like or which ones really took off in the earlier days, like MATLABs and ten, you have your own Tensorians and Quack and a bunch of others. Um, but like, what, what are most people doing today on the platform? Um, you know? Yeah, I think there's kind of two ways people use Tensor. Uh, so one is almost like a Bloomberg terminal. You just got to keep it open to track the market. A lot of people tell us they use it that way. Uh, I think it's just because, you know, us being traders, we managed to back a lot of data in a small amount of screen space. Um, I think people like that. So that I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I have a tab open here with uh, 
you know, tensor. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So, yeah, but I think, you know, it starts there. Like you ship something that's differentiated and people want, and all of a sudden you, you have your initial user base. Um, so that's probably the first way. I think the second way is basically actually trading. Uh, so buying, selling, um, market making. We have like uh, this basically like way of setting up a market making pool where you can both buy and sell. And uh, what we tried doing with all of those features is streamlining them to be both fast and also kind of operational in bulk. So, you know, instead of you having to list and buy one NFT at a time, you can do 100 NFTs at a time. And everything's like has a slider and it's just like a lot faster. We optimized the entire platform to have as few clicks as possible. Um, and so I think people like that, right? Like people just want to trade back and forth, um, you know, ape into their favorite collections. So probably those are the two main ways people use Tensor today. We are going to be introducing one third feature uh, in January, um, which we can't talk about just yet, but uh, we think that it'll basically unlock a new interesting financial use case. And what is the motivation for like um, buying something and like you, you can sweep a collection. So say that you really like something, but you have like a, you're from a try from a trader mindset, not a collector, right? Cause if you're a collector, uh, you know, I, I go specifically like, like a, when I bought my first Tensorian, I, I went out to you guys and say, Hey, what do you like? And I love the hoodie one with hooks. And so like, I, I just love that. That to me is, I don't think is a representative experience of the most perhaps users. Uh, another part of my DJ brain said, oh, I really like this collection. What is the best way to, if I think, if my thesis is NFTs will continue to grow in Solana uh, and by virtue of there's just more activity, users are just coming. I see this as a chain where it's more retail friendly because fees, by the way, are negligible. And so, you know, you can do all these much more velocity so what's the best way so i'm thinking okay maybe i'll sweep 50 tensorians or whatever and you can do that slider and you know and do it um but then you can do it sounds like obviously you can you can stake a tensorian which is not i think i think it's only unique for tensorians but you can provide liquidity and you're kind of incentivizing that like how many users stop at just sweeping and then putting on alerts and saying, okay, if the collection goes up 20%, I'm going to offload that or I'm going to provide liquidity. Um, I'm curious, like what percentage of the users are going the full step of providing liquidity and what is kind of their rationale to do that today? I would say most people who are trading on Tensor by number of wallets or number of users are not actively providing liquidity like they would on like uh, an AMM, like a like a Uniswap or an Orca on Solana. Most people are, in fact, just sweeping, for example, or even just buying individual NFTs or selling NFTs, like listing them on the market or selling them into a bid. The people that actually do liquidity provisioning are probably the bit the more sophisticated, um, sh- like super shadowy coders. They might have like uh, you know an interest in writing scripts, writing bots, and they might, you know, try to make a bit of money, you know, pocket change, or maybe even like a living sometimes by providing liquidity on Tensor. That just means like, you know, buying low, selling high, and doing that many, many times a day. And, you know, over time, you accumulate enough fees. I think what's interesting about RUI is that it enables both the former type of user as well as the latter type of user. 
I think that's something that like we we stumble upon over time, and and that is we have both a light mode on our app as well as a pro mode on our app, and that was something we introduced like quite a while ago, and we were just like, okay, a lot of people are complaining to us saying that our pro UI, which was like the Bloomberg terminal, was way too complex. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they don't want to see the the training view chart, they don't want to see the order book, they just want to see the JPEGs and have real time data access. And that's basically our light mode, is it looks like your eBay interface, but everything is fast. You can do things in bulk, and everything happens in real time. So you don't end up with like stale listings, which was commonplace when we initially got into the space. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. like these DGENs, they're using the light mode, and then they have the sophisticated guys who are using the pro mode, providing liquidity so that they can buy and sell for you know a very small spread. All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London March 18th to 20th for Blockworks's eighth ever Digital Asset Summit, DAS. This is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019. I like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto. People are still wearing suit and tie. It's pretty funny, but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from Standard Charter, FIS, JP Morgan, Framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One, Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and the spot ETF. Two, a view from the buy side. Three, RWA's tokenization and stablecoins. Four, Four, global regulatory frameworks, five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments, and six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got your back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is Empire20. There is a little competition running internally at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out, register with our code, and you get 20% off. That is Empire20. During this process uh, of like fast iteration, because I think the product, as I think about how much it evolved, you it sounds like you guys were constantly like listening to your customers, these kind of loyal sub thousand fans and, and iterating on that. Were there any features that you felt feel today that you got terribly wrong? And conversely, were there some features once you introduced them were a huge unlock to kind of stimulate a particular KPI that you were you know, focused on? Hmm. I think the AMM, when we first shipped it, was a little too complicated for many people. We kind of had to go on quite a few spaces and explain how it works. Um, but I think, like, yeah, it was just a process of iteration. And, like, honestly, the thing I'm most grateful for is that we were building sort of the bear. Because we actually had time to sit down with users, and users had time to sit down with us. It's kind of getting a little crazy right now. Like, there's basically, like, a new NFT standard every two days that we have to integrate and there's like a new nft type every two days that somebody invents which is like cool and awesome but that basically means you you don't have time to like actually talk to users anymore so i think like for any founders listening building in the bear is the best thing you can do because you actually get full attention uh both yourself and off your users hmm richard can you think of any features that we shipped that were like a huge hit off the bat trying to think I think with all things, when it comes to product, it's weird because sometimes when we think a feature will be a killer hit, it may take a pretty long time for it to like ramp up and like 
get enough usage, people start talking about it, and then more and more people start using it actively. Whereas like stuff that we thought, you know, is just so, you know, a nice to have feature, but isn't a big hit. Um, that actually gets a lot of excitement if people start talking about it. Mm-hmm. I would say, hmm, I can't point to any specific feature that was like a hit. Maybe that tells you something about like building products. And that is, you don't always need to build that killer feature that will 10x your user base overnight. I think building product, especially what we were doing with the marketplace, is almost like slow, continual iteration where we always loop the user back in and their feedback and try to figure out what, what is the next thing that maybe they want, but they don't really know how to you know, tangibly you know, put into sentences. How can we preempt that? And how can we build that feature into our product and offer this to them? And the next time they show up, they'll be like, oh, wow, there's this cool new feature that I didn't even know I needed, but now I'm using it every single day. And it's, it's like a lot of those in a short amount of times, so like we would do basically feature releases every single week. We would basically like deploy to prod like five times a day. It would just push like get push and it just like goes onto the production site. And then we just had like a bunch of these like neat features that all add up to creating a pretty interesting product experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I guess uh, as it relates to it just I want to go back to to building during difficult times and um, you know raising money and where you are now and certainly bull markets really pull you can pull you in a million directions. Um, as we you alluded to, I think Ilya, like there's just so much that you can do. How do you maintain a certain level of focus um, around building and not overextending, perhaps? Uh, you know, as you think about like the next year, you've you've had this initial success. You have these customers. Like, uh, I'm curious, like how you think about just building through this period staying focused, adding features, like, um, does, does anything change, uh, building it a bear to building now to having way more customers? Um, I, I'm curious from your standpoint, or is it just like, look, it's, we're going to continue to do things as we have before and it worked. And so, you know, we shouldn't really change. We just grow the team and it's, you know. Yeah. I think the demons you have to fight change. I think, during the bear market, you're like, you can't fall asleep because you're worried everything's going to zero and that you're actually wasting your time. During the bull market, you can't fall asleep because there's too much FOMO. And the thing that, you know, like you have like 17 things that you want to add into the product and you basically don't have time. And I think the answer, unfortunately, is um, you just have to develop judgment over time, right? And just like call things that you think are good and, and hope that your bets are correct. Like there's, there's no way you can build everything in, um, especially as the bull market is going to get crazier and crazier and crazier. You just have to pick battles um, and you have to learn from your mistakes, right? I think the one thing, again, I'm grateful for is like we basically had two years, almost two years with our users to get to know them. And so I like to think that we have a good understanding of how different features are going to hit. Like we may not know if it's going to be a blowaway success or a success, We'll probably have like an idea, okay, this is going to be minor, this is going to be major type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just about training your neural net, you know, inside your head, uh, making a bunch of mistakes and hopefully becoming better over time. 
Um, in terms of standards, uh, I want to go back to that a bit. Obviously, my understanding is Metaplex is like the dominant standard. It has been for a while. You say you're 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 looking at integrating other standards. Uh, I'm curious if you could go deeper into that. So the most obvious standard that we recently integrated was the inscription standard. They're you know by the Libreflex guys. Uh, it's also like just uh, I think I think it's one dev maybe Tom um, who just hacked hacked this together. Yeah, I, I think that. it was a couple maybe, and he hacked it together. You know, a couple of them hacked it together like probably over like a two three month period, and all of a sudden it just like took off, right? Like they were in the right place at the right time. There was all of this inscription FOMO from Bitcoin and Ordinals, and all of that attention, all of that. Uh, excitement came into Solana as soon as Solana started going up. People said, okay, Solana is going to be the next Ethereum. And what is something that is cool that you can do with NFTs that you know came out of a recent trend? And that is inscriptions. And so now people are inscribing or putting like NFT data on chain on Solana, even though there's mm-hmm. no like, it's not a necessity, but it's like another fun novel thing that people can do with NFTs. And I think that goes back to like, why a lot of people are trading things in crypto right now. And that is because there is some new idea, new narrative, new mechanic that people latch onto. And it's fun to participate in these games because you don't know what, you don't know what's going to happen. Novel things tend to be unpredictable. And so you almost feel like you're getting in um, with a, with a level playing field and everyone can participate in this fun new game that people are playing together and trying to like figure out for the first time. So I think it really appeals to like gamer, gamer types like us. Um, because mm-hmm. you're, you're essentially playing this new game that just came out and everyone in the world is trying to play it and there's money involved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's only fun. I mean, um, in terms of in, inscriptions, maybe for the uh, less sophisticated listeners out there, could you just comment very quickly on uh, what inscriptions are, how they're kind of different from your typical NFT and how much of the activity today in Solana, you know, inscriptions are taking down blockchains um, because the activity is just ballooned, right? Um, I'm curious how much activity in the platform today is like inscriptions versus just your traditional NFT standard, like non-inscription. Yeah, so basically an NFT is actually two things under the hood. It's a private key that lets you control it. uh, And it's a bunch of data. So when you go in an NFT marketplace, you obviously see the picture that data needs to be stored somewhere. Very often, for what most people think of NFTs, that data doesn't live on the blockchain. It would be too expensive to store that. It could, it could live somewhere else. It could live on Rweave, IPFS, sometimes even AWS. Um, and then what lives on the blockchain is just a pointer to that data. And that pointer, whoever controls the NFT or like owns the NFT, actually owns so that's what's like a classical NFT. The difference for inscriptions is that the data itself lives on the blockchain. I think inscriptions really took off with like ordinals on Bitcoin because of the mechanics that are necessary on Bitcoin to mint an NFT. You could argue that on other blockchains like Solana, like Ethereum, you don't really need inscriptions. But there's something magical about having your entire NFT data live on the blockchain itself. And by the way, like, Inscriptions existed for a while. So there were experiments, I think, even with like art blocks and I think even punks maybe mm-hmm. are inscribed on, on the Ethereum blockchain. 
Um, so it's not like this is a completely new concept. It's just that now it's sort of like hit that inflection point and a lot of people got excited about them. Um, now to your second question, I think in terms of activity, to be honest, there have been days where like over 50% of trading volume for NFTs is inscriptions. So, you know, it's, it's exciting. There's, there's a lot of people that are interested. And I guess the other interesting thing is we think that the people trading these things are actually a new user segment because we see that in our user numbers that went up when inscriptions became popular. And they tend to be more Asia-focused uh, rather than kind of Western-focused. So it's kind of interesting. It's like almost a new trend that brings in new users um, and I guess like spreads NFTs to new parts of the population. Yeah, absolutely. I think the 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 way I think about inscriptions is there's just more certainty and there is now a possibility to be more specific, opinionated about a particular uh, part of the block. Like for instance, for Bitcoin, of course, once you have the halvening, there are certain moments, right, where you want to append your data to a particular Satoshi, I think, of like, imagine being the, the Genesis block. Well, an inscription for that would be much rarer, right, than your typical kind of inscription on any given block. And so it just becomes what is commoditized block space. Now you add in a whole nother dimension of bidding for a particular, like appending data to a particular, like, uh, like block uh, and, and, and a piece within that block. And so it just becomes like pretty awesome to, uh, to see, uh, you know, to your point around Asia, I think it's really taken off dramatically in, in China and some of these places. So I'm kind of not surprised. Um, um, I guess, um, I mean, I, I know you mentioned that you didn't want to comment much on these new features that are coming out, but uh, maybe uh, if you can talk about the type of users that you don't think you have captured yet uh, and just talking generally about trends, uh, user trends, uh, volume wise, uh, you know, th there's all these folks commenting now, like Solana seeing more activity than any other chain out there on the deck side. I'm curious how that stacks up on the NFT side. Um, how, yeah, maybe we could just have a general discussion around user trends and what you've observed over these chaotic, like past couple of months where Solana just has gone parabolic. Yeah, there are a couple of trends that we saw in the past couple of months. I think one of them that we didn't talk too much about was actually uh, the introduction of like compressed NFTs and specifically a project called Drip on Solana. They started doing a ton of free art drops, like entirely free. You show up, you connect your wallet and every single day or I think every single week you can subscribe to like certain artists or certain creators and you'll get their art drop. That actually brought in a ton of people from uh, like Southeast Asia, basically places where uh, the cost of living is much lower. And so people are almost like getting a kick out of getting these like free airdrops that are maybe worth like a penny or two, which is insignificant to most people in the West. But it's actually fun to accumulate these drops and potentially even get like a legendary drop, which is worth, you know, at the time, like 0.5 to one soul is pretty typical. And that's like pretty significant to someone in, in that part of the world, right? Where you're getting basically 40, 40 US dollars, maybe like 80 US dollars now, uh, just for showing up and subscribing to an artist and looking at their art. That's one user trend that we saw. I think it's going to come back. I actually think that is a very bullish signal 
for Solana being able to appeal to uh, appeal to users across the world, even if they come from very low cost of living countries. And that's because Solana is just cheap. It's fast. You're not paying, you know, on the low end, like $5 in gas fees. On the high end, like $50, maybe $500 during a mint. You don't even have to think about gas fees. And I think that's, that has, that's like a non, that's table stakes for people in lower cost of living areas. The, the other trend that we're seeing is more Asian adoption. I think that's coming through ordinals. I think that's going to come with uh, essentially creators getting more interested in Solana, this like up, up, up and coming L1, and them wanting to do art drops, them wanting to do collections on Solana. I think for us, the user segment that we're more interested in are all the crypto native users who are still on the sidelines of Solana, who haven't taken that jump yet, that leap yet, because maybe they, they thought, you know, Solana was going to go to zero during FTX. And they've essentially just said, okay, I'm going to stay on ETH. I'm going to trade, you know, board A's. I'm going to trade pudgy penguins. I'm not going to touch Solana. But what's interesting, something that's interesting that we're seeing with these ETH users who are coming over slowly but surely um, is that once they experience Solana and trading Solana NFTs on Tensor, their attitude completely changes, right? Solana is no longer this Alt-L1 that was backed by SBF, but it was this, it's this Alt-L1 that can power the future of finance and has one of the best user experiences, if not the best user experience in crypto right now. So I think that's really compelling. I think we can onboard a ton more ETH users to Solana, and hopefully they start trading NFTs on Tensor. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to observe uh, it'd probably be difficult to do, but in a perfect world, you'd want to see how many trades does a user do on Ethereum, L1 or L2 or L3, and how much, once they come over to Solana, how much more trades do they do because fees are just negligible? It's just, you know, and you, you know, I certainly anecdotally, personally, and having talked to a lot of more ETH heavy folks that start using something like Jupiter. They're like, wow, uh, all of a sudden I'm doing way more stuff. Uh, you know, you can, there's all these really nice features, uh, some of which are kind of quote, quote, only possible in Solana. Um, like, like I talked to the drip guys, truly like his comment was to your point, even if we wanted to do this on an L2, it would have been possible. Like it's just, uh, it wouldn't be a viable business model. So compressed NFTs become such an important kind of like, for them, the, the negligible fees just become essential to their business model, right? But yeah, I, I don't know if you have some like insight or kind of data points around like how much more of this unlocking of consumer activity is happening because once you discover Solana, you don't really want to go back and you don't really accept paying any sort of fees that are uh, noticeable. Uh, and then so you stay, right? That's actually exactly how I got into Solana. So during the last bull market, I sort of got interested in like 2019. And if you remember back then, like for you to do a simple interaction with like the curve contract would cost you like, you know, 500 bucks. And, you know, I wasn't the bajillionaire. 500 bucks was a lot of money to me. So I was like, I can't do this. So I went and, and started like- Even if it were five bucks. Yeah. That's, that's still a lot, right? Like that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so I started doing it on Solana and then I was like, oh man, I kind of like feel bad now about doing anything on ETH. It just feels <laughs> painful, you know, like you're like losing money. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, I think that's spot on. I mean, I was just going to add like, you know, you asked about trends. I think the biggest overarching trend we're seeing in Solana is people are just not afraid to experiment with stuff. 
like all the you know degen coins and degen inscriptions and this and that um it's all fun and games but it's actually pretty interesting experiments under the hood like there's a guy who basically built a minting uh process where you mint one nft per block because blocks in Solana are super fast. They're about 400 milliseconds. It would take you a couple hours to mint out like a 10,000 NFT collection. And let's say there's like 50 traders that uh, tried to bet on the NFT during a block. They all bet the same amount. Uh, one of them gets it. So it's like randomized. But then all of that amount that was collected is used to bid on that same NFT as a, it's just like placed on a marketplace as a bid. And so it's like an interesting minting process that you can't bot. Because it's very systematic, like you have to participate in, in as many blocks as you want to. And as soon as there are enough traders that have bid an NFT so that the EV of the NFT is where you think it should be, you're basically not betting anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So like those kind of experiments, we're just like seeing so many of them right now because it's just like so easy and so cheap. And so and, and like, yeah, people just want to try stuff. I think that's really the biggest thing that Solana has going for it right now. It's just like fun, you know, people want to try stuff. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Um, as you think about, you know, being where you are today as one of the leading projects, um, I guess maybe take this opportunity to talk more generally about Solana, you know, as a, as a blockchain, like what, what do you think as a builder Solana needs to gets really right? And we've talked a little bit about that, but more so I want to get more on the, what can Solana do, right? Because uh, no blockchain is perfect, right? And so from your standpoint, like, what do you want to see or what are some of the things that you think are going to be essential for Solana to maintain its position as the more, the most retail or just the most friendly um, blockchain, like this sort of 10x faster, cheaper, and better, and better encompasses many things, security, friendliness, and, and, and a number of things. Um, so yeah, maybe you know, we, we, we can spend a little bit of time on that. Yeah. Uh, I was actually watching your episode with, Yano know, uh, on like the OSI, OSI model monolith versus, or I guess integrated versus modular, um, and mm-hmm. sort of the trade-offs there related to that point. I think what Solana offers is simplicity from a mental model for a builder. You don't have to think about building on this L2, which isn't, you know, directly mainnet, but it's this L2 that has EVM, but then it has a DA, it uses a DA layer that's on a different chain, like Celestia or, you know, I think there's a couple of others. Um, it's just like too much for a builder to think about. And like, you're, you're thinking like, okay, yes, there's this complicated modular system. What am I trading off here? Like, what are some of the assumptions I'm making? And there are probably a number of security assumptions or just like efficiency assumptions that you're making. Um, that you don't necessarily have to think about when you're building on Solana. Everything is integrated together. You can essentially do end-to-end optimization of the system, and it just gets faster at every single point as the core devs continue working on it. That's like one nice to have. Like it's it's more uh, nebulous because it's sort of in the background. I think the one thing that Solana needs to get right, and I think it's they're working on it for sure, is the developer experience around building smart contracts on Solana, as well as the developer experience with dealing uh, with this much data. I think for most blockchain devs coming from the EVM space, they've never had to deal with 500, 600 transactions per second, right? That, that's like unheard of on mainnet. Well, that, that is unheard of on mainnet. That's like unheard of on 
most L2s. And I think you have to be a pretty good engineer if you want to like basically build everything from scratch, kind of like what we did, or you have to have like the aptitude to learn all of that stuff on the fly. I think there are a lot of good companies and projects that are trying to make this easier. Um, like Anchor is one of the more the most common uh, developer framework or I guess framework to use to build Solana programs, and they've done a pretty good job in simplifying a lot of the complexities with building Solana programs. But I would say uh, there's definitely room for improvement, and it could get a ton better. We just need more developers building, building better tooling. Um, I think this is all to say that it's not for naught that we have this more complicated developer experience compared to Solidity and EVM. And that's because in order to get such great performance and throughput on the chain itself, you have to make the developer experience a bit more hardcore, if that makes sense. It's kind of like writing in C++, like a low-level language, versus writing in Python. Yes, in Python, you could write a script that does a bunch of stuff that would take you maybe 10 times as long to do it in C++. And that's because in C++, you have to deal with memory management, you have to deal with like hardware knowledge, maybe like some like archaic compiler optimizations. And that's kind of like the same thing that Solana is going through because you want that performance across this entire blockchain. You need to trade off certain developer um, things that you have to think about as a developer. Yeah, I think developer experience is probably the main thing where Solana needs to do a bit of work. Maybe the other one is, I think the community needs to become a little more mature. I think right now it's sort of a Solana's community can be a little like hot and fast sometimes. And I think as with any technology, you know, the more successful you become, the more you start thinking about reliability, resilience in the case of blockchains often open source that's something we're thinking about for kind of beginning of next year i think many solana projects are thinking about that right now um but look that's that's a normal kind of gradual evolutionary process right as the community succeeds and becomes more uh more mature and kind of thinks more about those things then i think teams also have a more mature attitude so i think that's going to come i'm not too worried about that seeing good signs yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think it's normal. Any community goes through some level of euphoria once you have a near death experience and just feels great to come out <laughs> the other end and saying, okay, like we stuck through it. And, but I, I do see a lot of, when I talk to the core team, uh, Ben and Anatoly and, you know, just, I, I think they're very much grounded and I think they understand that there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I'm particularly, when I see that, like, I just could, it's just very exciting. Certainly you have the MATLAB, you know, like the, 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 the manlets, you know, there's a lot of Twitter is always kind of a very loud and, uh, I think, um, loud voices are, are always a thing, but they're not very representative of times of the real core builders that just keep building and keep their head down. But just the, the, the posture and the commentary and the vision, I think, is very clear from the Solana team, like the core team. And I got to imagine I'm a terrible builder. But if you're a builder, like just seeing that is probably very comforting and gives you a lot of confidence to keep building on this ecosystem. Like, hey, they're building Fire Dancer and that's coming and that's going to have a huge improvement for liveness and resiliency. And I think um, for better or for worse, it's just a more integrated team, right? It's just you can probably go to them and maybe even make proposals 
Whereas if you try to do that in Ethereum, it'd be just difficult because it's just farther along and you have to, there's not like one still central kind of core team that is building, right? There's just these different kind of units that you have to, the coordination problem is is harder to, to make improvements and, and put forth the IPs, right? But um, I yeah, think, I think uh, it's going through a very magic. Yeah. I think Dolly is, is a really good leader. Like, UX was definitely part of the reason I switched to Solana. Another part was just, you know, watching him talk about his vision and seeing that, okay, there was something there. Like, I guess what excited me about Solana was that he was not trying to replicate what existed with like a little twist. It was a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. And that way was grounded in hardcore engineering. And having somebody who has the technical chops to have a vision like that, and then has the guts to go and execute it on a vision and then I think, as the last year showed, has the guts to survive through literally the worst wave of flood possible. Oh, man. I mean, people like that are one in a million. So I think mm-hmm. I think we're lucky to have him. Like him and Raj have really been uh, spearheading Solana and uh, I think inspiring the entire community. Yeah. Well, I know we're bumping up on time and I want to be mindful of you. So I want to go through, uh, before I, I go to a fire round set of questions, uh, I don't know if there's anything else that you guys want to touch on that we haven't covered during this segment. I think 2024 is going to be our biggest year ever. I think we saw massive growth. We went from 0% market share beginning of this year to I think 70%, 70, 80% sometimes. I think 2024 is going to be different in that, uh, you know, we're not necessarily trying to prove ourselves anymore on Solana and like try to, essentially make ourselves into someone because we're no one before. I think what's going to be much more important for us to focus on is growing the pie and then getting more people to build on top of us so we don't have to try to build everything and become, you know, the super app, which usually tends not to go well, you know, unless you're in, like, China and you have the backing of, like, the government for WeChat. Um, So I think pushing towards decentralization open source, and getting other people to build on top of us is our biggest goal for 2024. Ilya, anything else? No, I think that's it. We just want more developers building cool stuff, and uh, we're going to be here to support them. Amazing. Well, I, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. I always like to end it with a fire round set of questions. Um, so both of you should answer uh, both uh, no more than five seconds. Um, or I'll cut you off, I promise. So the first one is, would you do this all over again? Oh, boy. Uh, probably <laughs> if I knew everything I know, no. Well, I feel like the answer to that question is the grass is always greener, but it's not. Um, so yeah. I would say yes. I would say yes. I'll, yeah. I, would do I think uh, going through the, the grass chewing all over again. So I think the yeah. the reward is worth it. I think it's an unfair fire round question, but so we'll be lenient on this. I've heard so many founders say you have, there's needs to be some level of insanity and, and like negligence around like what it will take, especially to build in this space to go through this. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, it's always refreshing to hear because it is really difficult to build in crypto, I think, even more so than traditional. So let's, we'll stick to easier questions, less philosophical, I guess. Uh, what is your favorite collection or JPEG that you own or may not own? Well, I mean, it has to be a Tensorian. Uh, that's not a real question. Right? <laughs> that was a layup, Richard. 
if I wasn't choosing, obviously, Tensorians, uh, Matlots. Yeah. I think they're quality builders. I think they represent what every Solana NFT collection should aspire to, and which is building cool shit, not being afraid to be vocal, and just like growing the pie, right? They've grown Solana so much during their mint. This is the backpack team, right? Armani and... Yep, Armani Tristan. Uh, yeah. I, I did a poll recently on Twitter that said, like, what would you collect? And there were four options. The first one was the, the Saga phone, uh, which, as we now know, is like you're well in the money. Um, the other one, Tensorians was another option. Matlas was a third. And then the other one's like other. And then you had Clay Nasaurus and a few others. But number one was the Saga phone, because I think people are just speculating on the value of this thing. It's going for like 5000 on eBay and the value of retail is like 600 uh, And then the second was Matlabs, to your point, and then Tensorians. Um, uh, what else? Maybe parting question. Let's make it fun. How many hours of sleep are you getting? Yeah, last night, not that many because there were <laughs> blowups in production. And so that's why we look a little tired. But normally we try to get at least six, seven, I guess. Yeah, it fluctuates. Idealistically, eight, right? Um, obviously, that never, almost never happens. So, I think, I think getting sleep is important because making decisions is hard and important, and you need to be clear-headed and awake to make those important decisions. Yeah. How big will the team be at the end of twenty twenty-four? My bet is between ten and twenty. I think is where we're going to end up. You're eight today. You're eight, 10 today. About ten. About ten. I think. Um, uh, we're we're generally belie- believers in like small teams. I think teams like DYDX, like very small, very focused. You know, rockstar engineers. Like we love love that model. Yeah, Richard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a cheeky answer here. Hopefully a, a thousand, because uh, hopefully a thousand developers start building on top of Tensor, and they're all part there we of go. Tensor. Then. Yeah, nice. I like that. Um, last one, biggest, uh, life hack that you implemented in 2023 to increase your wellness, happiness, sense of fulfillment, whatever it is. Okay. I'm going to get a lot of shit for this one, but it's going to be cold showers. (laughs) Two minutes in the morning, two, three minutes in the morning. We have this like joke inside the team. Uh, we always like ask each other, "Did you take a cold shower today?" But uh, I actually think yes. it works. Like it really helps. Just a shower, not not a plunge. Ideally, if you can do that, I mean, I just don't have a big enough tub. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, we're we're both going to get shit because a lot of NF, uh, like influencers are not doing this. But I've been doing cold plunges forever, and they reduce. Like for me, it's just critical that science behind reducing inflammation and recovery is there. But yeah, yeah, we'll get shit for it no matter what. Uh, Richard. I have a pretty boring answer, um, more practical, but just silencing all your notifications during the day. Because I think, yes, there are important things. Uh, actually, well, there's some things we don't silence, like the, the high priority chats that we have with our team. Yeah. But I think you can get so caught up, especially if you're starting to see a lot of inbound in like the bull market, to just constantly see a notification and try to respond to it. And you just become completely, you're context switching every two seconds. And that's impossible to get any. Yeah, yeah. Oh, can I throw one more in that I think is like, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, pick two days on the calendar and make them your call days. That's the two days you take calls on. The other three days, no calls. And you just code on the other three days. That has been just like, it's super productive. 
I definitely agree with that. I, I implement that. Started implementing that more. Uh, being more judicious with your calendar. Um, okay, well, maybe one more. Why not? Um, because you met online, um, and you, you know, in this quirky manner, which is so representative of COVID, probably like 90% of the people in crypto that I talked to, I've never met in person. That may be a good thing, actually. I don't know. Um, but um, what is something that you didn't know about the other that was like the biggest surprise? I'm, I'm going to take on Richard here first. Yeah, I, I was going to say I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, this is, this is my kid. I'm I'm the same thing too. But uh, Ilya is a, a huge degen as well, and uh, I think it goes back to he said he played a lot of like World of Warcraft and like MMORPGs. I also played like RuneScape and like Maple Story and a bunch of like degenerate like MMORPGs when I was a little. So I think I think. It's it's cool to see that someone as uh, level-headed and clear-headed can also be a complete degen in a good way at the same time. Yeah, I think degens get a bad rep, but uh, there's just so much behind it, a degen uh, that is, you know, admirable, I think. <laughs> well, I think a degen is a little bit of an unfair word because it has this negative yeah. connotation to it. But if you actually think about it, like, People who like took a ship across the ocean to America probably were degens, right? Like you yeah. have to be a degen to do that. So really, another word for that is explorers. You know, like people who are yeah. excited to try new things in life. And uh, yeah. I think that's cool. I, I, I'm perfectly fine. People call me degen. I actually wear that. I think there's a compliment. <laughs> uh, and anyone who thinks otherwise can politely fuck off. Um, uh, yeah. Ilya, what did you discover uh, from from Richard? Yeah, I think obviously when you meet somebody online, like you can only ask them that many questions over the camera to like get to know them. And I think we had like a bit of an understanding that we're like similar-ish uh, in like many ways. But it kind of like became a little crazy when I flew over. And we're like, you know, like how in like in Fallout or in some game you have these sliders that you have where like characters. I think our sliders are pretty aligned, like in many ways, like about the same risk appetite, about the same level of impatience, about the same level of like temperament, you know, like all these things, but they really matter when you're operating in an environment like full of vagueness and you have to make split second decisions and like turn the company around on a dime and like being able to turn around to the person and know that what's going on inside their brain is pretty similar to what's going on inside of your brain. And so you guys can kind of like wink, wink, like very quickly agree on something, just get to work. Um, I think it's basically invaluable. And I didn't expect that. Like, that's kind of crazy. You don't find something like that. As far as I can tell, and I've invested in many, it's, it's really hard to find that. Um, so anyways, guys, this has been a real treat. Uh, I would love hearing the inside story uh, at a moment in time where, you know, it was just really difficult to build in Solana and it's now in, more people's minds, right? And I think they will appreciate how hard it was um, because then it's so easy to then now say, oh, it was just so obvious and, and whatnot, but it really wasn't, I think. And you guys really had a front row seat in that and you built uh, a really cool and unique product. So I, I hope that you continue to execute and maybe at some point we'll have you on to talk about more features that are coming out. I'll, I'll certainly be paying attention. Um, so really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. It was great to hear it. Thanks for having us on. This was fun. I do this more yeah, often. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, thanks. It was fun.
everyone thank you so much for watching today's episode really hope you enjoyed it we wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming digital asset summit in london march 18th to 20th santi and i got your back seats are limited and we hooked you up with a 20 percent off discount code it is empire 20 if you heard it earlier in the podcast there's a little competition running at blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets so when you register for the digital asset summit make sure you use our code empire 20 see you in london